This is the Concealed Carry Podcast, episode number 327. Welcome to the Concealed Carry Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network, along with the Not Your Average Gun Girls podcast and the Firearm Trainers podcast. Fairly new podcast. It's doing quite well. But I am here today. I am Riley Bowman, your host, and uh, joined by Jacob Paulson. Yep, managed that's to, me. Managed to convince him to drag himself out of his uh, underground dungeon and uh, come out and record with me today. I'm actually like in the dungeon recording, <laughs> which is the irony of what you said. So uh, uh, today is a special episode. Super excited about this. In fact, I've been looking forward to it for a couple of weeks now uh, for a variety of reasons. Number one, uh, today's episode is sponsored, brought to you by HiViz Shooting Systems. You can find them at HiVizSites.com. And uh, we appreciate their support of the podcast and for also sending Jacob and I some really sweet sights. These are the Lightwave H3 sights. They uh, that are a fairly new product for them, and uh, looking to get some exposure on. And, and you know, they sent us a, a set, and these are really, really great sights. So we've had the opportunity to spend some time with these. You've you've heard it probably in some past episodes. We, we talked about receiving them, looking them over. Then we talked about mounting them to, to our guns. And yeah, okay, they look pretty good. And then I spent some time, took them to the range and put some rounds through them. Then I took a Dave Spaulding handgun combatives, actually kinetic combat pistol course. Where So basically, I, I have put probably 1,200 plus rounds through my Glock 17, Jacob, with these uh, Lightwave H3 sights. That's a fair amount. Yeah, like I think that's probably enough to uh, give a uh, an assessment, you know? Like, what do I think? Well... And, you know, and then I'll turn it over to you, of course. Uh, what I think here is I really appreciate the contrast between the front sight and the rear sight. Uh, the front is uh, fiber optic green. And you have a couple different color options, but I went with the fiber optic green. And it has a white outline around the fiber optic rod itself. And uh, so that's a nice, you know, whether it's daytime, whether it's low light, whatever. And plus these are these are Trigicon uh, night sights as well. Or not tri- Tridium. Tritium uh, night sights as well. So uh, nighttime, daytime, low light, doesn't really matter. Uh, really, really good high visibility, high vis. I'm sure that uh, has something to do with their name. Anyway, really great contrast. The rear, uh, what I have is the orange fiber optics in the rear. And uh, instead of, you know, what I appreciate is is the rear is kind of, it's, it's more subdued than the front sight. So the front sight is, you know, this big, bright, green, white outline, and the rear is more subdued, but, you know, where, where it counts, uh, you can see things when you need to. So uh, I was very successful in shooting these for uh, the last couple of weeks and going through that uh, handgun course and all that. So that's my assessment. Jacob? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've not put uh, nearly that many rounds through it. In fact, mostly I've been using it dry fire. I have my new cool fire trainer, and I've been playing... Uh, with that on my Glock 19, which has the high vis sights installed, but I've been done done a lot of dry fire, just trying to you know pick up the, the the sights right as quickly as I can in my draw presentation to target, and been playing with target transitions and really trying to get a sense for this. And and you know, in full disclosure too, I'll add this is my first aftermarket sights. Uh, I'm not a Riley guy. Riley has been through many an aftermarket sight in his day. Uh, but this is the first time I've ever removed sights from a gun and put sights on it. 
So uh, what does that mean? Well, you know, it's, it's my trusty Glock 19. So this are going to use a lot. And I was fine with the stock sites, but there's no going back. That's where I'm at now. Is I think that once you, you try a nice quality uh, aftermarket site like these, there's no going back. And I understand now um, you know, why there's so much value. In fact, I, it's funny because my P365, which I acquired not too long ago, comes with some nice sites on it. And so I've been carrying that more and I thought, man, it's, it's nice having these night sites. And so then when we got these high vis and I put it on, I thought, yeah, no, there's, I can't go back. There's no, there's no going back. It just changes everything. It is faster to acquire the sites than my stock uh, Glock sites. No question about it. I can pick up that green uh, or white if it's, you know, if it's low light. I can pick that up in the rear notch faster uh, than I could before. And the contrast green to orange matters. And you, you mentioned that they have different color options and when you buy the the H3s from from Hi-Viz, you can get them green front and rear or orange front and rear, but I think that's very counterproductive. I would encourage you when you order these to make sure you either get green front and orange rear, which is what uh, Riley, both you and I have done, or I think I suppose in theory you could get orange front and green rear. I I, I really am confident I would not prefer that. I, I like the green front and orange rear, um, but it, it does make a difference having a high quality set of sights. And, you know, from, from you know, we're about to, to hear an interview, we're about to play back with Jerry Michalik. Whether you're talking to Jerry Michalik or if you're talking to, uh, you know, an attorney like Andrew Branca, everyone agrees that, you know, a good set of sights is critical to the gun and has no potential negative consequence, uh, you know, assuming they're, they're quality, good, durable sights. So anyway, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy. I feel like I can acquire sights faster, which means I can shoot faster, both in terms of initial shot on target and follow-up shots and managing recoil and reacquiring those sights. So yeah, I'm yeah. I'm stoked. I'm happy. You you said you were fine with old stock sites, but uh, you were you that maybe that's it. You were just fine. Well, now that, you're going to suddenly like, become a phenomenal shooter overnight because you can see your sights. <laughs> <laughs> well, think of, think of it this way: like, do you remember when you were fine without a without text messaging on your phone, or you were fine without <laughs> one of those smartphones, or you were fine without? You know, insert here. Like, there's tons of things in life we're fine when we don't know what we're missing, but once you have it, there's no going back. <laughs> you can't go back to a world where you don't have that, right? Like, yeah. I can't go back to a world where I don't have high quality night sights yep. uh, on my gun that are that are really high vis both during the day and at night. And so, yeah, there's just there's no going back. Yep, I am in agreement with you now. I, I was just going to provide some uh, some context for, for those of you that are thinking about ordering these sites from High Viz. Uh, the you know Jacob talked about the importance of making sure that you have contrast between the front and the rears, so don't go the same colors. And I, I would I would concur with that. And let me explain some of my uh, my logic or reasoning behind why I went green front and orange rear. The uh, green fiber optic, and this has been my experience, and, and you know, I've had a couple of different sites on different guns that were fiber optic, including on some competition guns, and the green has always been what shows up the brightest for me. Red can do pretty well too, and orange is okay, but green, it, it just seems like that the fiber optic rod itself, you know, it's just a plastic rod, it just seems like, because it's, I think, a lighter color, it, it just picks up the light and, and really just allows it to shine really well. So I felt like going green on the front would give me the brightest front sight possible. And I feel like if I'd gone with uh, the orange in the front, they're, they're a little bit duller looking. You could tell, Jacob, looking at yours, I'm sure, just like mine. They're a little bit, you know, they're, they're not quite as intense. Um, and so I think that if I had green in the rear and orange in the front, it would sort of 
counter be, be counterproductive that I wouldn't have quite as much contrast where you know the most important thing for us to see when we are looking at our sites is the front sight and so I want as much brightness and contrast there as possible that's going to come into play by the way uh, with the interview we're about to play back for you uh, that I'm really excited about uh, so we were privileged to get Jerry Michalik on the program for an interview, um, partly because he's sponsored by HiViz. And uh, unless you think this is an hour-long testimonial uh, about HiViz sites, there's, there, I promise you there's a lot more content in the uh, podcast today than, than just that. But he talks about, and we ask him about uh, sites and site picture and picking that up, site acquisition, all that stuff. And one thing that I think really stood out to me from this interview, Jacob. And it's not like this is the first time I'm hearing this, but you know, as you kind of start putting more and more things together in your own personal journey to becoming as as good a shooter as you can be, you know, sometimes you, things come back again. You go, ah, oh, yeah, that just makes so much more sense now than it did to me a year ago. Uh, and, and so what, what came up in this interview is Jer- Jerry talked about how when he's transitioning from targets, from target to target to target, uh, that uh, you know, he his eyes are he he's making his shots on the first target, and then his eyes are going to the second target, and basically as soon as he sees his sights, you know, his hand is coming over now, the gun's coming over now, the sights are coming over, and he sees those sights on the target, and the trigger goes, you know, but in other words, the sights are seeing those sights on target and somewhat in alignment. That's your go signal to go ahead and press trigger. So you know, and then I followed that up with. Jerry, so the front, so your sights are like your your gas pedal, right? And he's like, yeah, pretty much. So um, that I think just really comes into play as we're talking about here about good quality sights, contrast in sights, bright sights. You know, Jacob talked about how he feels like he's able to pick up his sights now so much faster than he used to. Um, I just thought I'd uh, give that little bit of tease. You know, again, there's tons more content coming from this interview today. Looking yeah, forward. he's going to drop a lot of truth bombs on you guys. It's really exciting. He talks a lot about uh, kind of aging eyes and dealing with uh, prescriptions. He talks about one eye versus uh, two eyes open. Um, he talks a lot about some you know competitive versus defensive related things. This is a guy who obviously has you know, made, made his career in the competitive shooting world, but he's very conscientious about defensive shooting and concealed carry. A lot of, a lot of good content here. Yep. So there you have it. Again, uh, thanks for, to HiViz uh, Sites. Uh, HiVizSites.com is where you can find more information on these and other great products that they offer. So let's go ahead and play back the interview now, shall we? Here we go. All right, folks, welcome to uh, this interview with Jerry Michalik. We got a lot of listeners, a lot of viewers uh, that actually we we, we we kind of pulled them ahead of time. We questioned them and said, hey, you know, what, what sort of questions and things would you like to, to ask Jerry about? So we got a list of questions here. But uh, first, I want to point out that part of the reason we're together on this episode here today is uh, HiViz Shooting Systems has brought us together because HiViz is sponsoring this episode today. And conveniently, Jacob and I have been testing out these new LightWave H3 sites from uh, HiViz. I've, you can see I got my blank Glock slide here. I mounted these to, to my Glock. And uh, so... You've been a sponsored shooter with uh, HiViz for a long time, Jerry. Tell us, uh, I, I think the natural progression here would be to, to talk about site picture, site acquisition, that sort of thing. You've been using HiViz for a long time. So tell us what you like about HiViz sites. Well, they're, they're very durable. So 
that's one of the things in competition. If you got a trick set of sights on and uh, they break in the middle of a match, well, you're not they're not too tricked. So everything that they've built is is overbuilt. So when you go to a competition, it's just like on my carry gun, I've I've got the same H3s on my carry gun. So uh, I shoot what I what I train with and train what I shoot and all that stuff. So uh, their sights are really good. They they they've passed the, the test of time. I've got thousands and thousands of rounds on them. They don't fall apart. They stay there. And these H3s with the tritium and the fiber optic kind of have both of uh, of everything that you want: high visibility, daylight, dark. So uh, it's mm-hmm. a win. Uh, Jerry, like if I'm gonna I'm gonna make you do a pretend scenario. Let's pretend you started a sight company tomorrow. And uh, you walk in with your engineer, and he says, "All right, so tell me what you want me to make. Like, what, what, are, you know, what would you say? What, are, what are you looking for when you look at sites? I mean, what, how, when you evaluate? Yeah, that looks like it's a pretty good site. That looks like it's a pretty good site. I mean, outside of durability, which comes with time, what are just some of the initial things that you're looking for? I want, I want contrast. Uh, black sites are great when you're shooting a target with the, with a known background. Uh, you have ample light to see the target, and your target is a is a known target, and it's it's usually well lit. Uh, duty guns or competition guns, you you have all kind of formats, all kind of different scenarios that you encounter. Low light, no light. Uh, so all these all these conditions change. Uh, you're shooting targets with different. Uh, it could be any any color, or combination of shadows and lighting. So the ability to see the sight quickly and with some degree of clarity. Is very important to how how you how you interact with the target. So, how bright the sight is, the the the, the fiber optic uh, enhances that ability to see quicker, and the tritium fiber optic kind of kind of negates the uh, night issue. So, you got both of them. Yeah, yeah. So you, when you say contrast, you're obviously talking about the contrast between the front sight and the rear sight, as well as the you know the the, the target. Yeah. Yep. And then you're talking about brightness just in terms of, you know, being able to pick that up over whatever, you know, my target might be. Right. Because what you're doing when you're speed shooting, you, you're, you're going to slam into a target really quick, visual. Uh, the, the target, the, the firearm is going to coincide with your vision, and then you, you've got a moment to, uh, to apply the uh, shot to the target. So being able to see the sight in your peripheral vision coming into the target zone uh, allows you to slow down a little bit quicker, get the get the gun stopped where you need it on target, so you're there a minimum amount of time, make the required hits, and then leave visually. So the ability to see the sight coming into the target is a great advantage, and not yeah. waiting for the sight to get to the target, then dress it up, and then make the shot. So yeah, and so and to your point, then high vis does both these things well, right? They have that the very you know highly visible, but also good contrasting sights. And the the durability factor is 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 big for you. It is, especially uh, field shooting, uh, any kind of target uh, sport where lighting in the background changes. Uh, it's it's a great advantage. Yeah, Jerry, I want to. We're gonna just kind of transition a little bit. Uh, you know, we're just, I want to keep talking about sights because I think, yeah. I, you know, when people see you shoot, and this is true, I think when I see a lot of competitive or, or sometimes when I see Riley shoot, the thought that always comes to my mind is. There's just no way he's picking up his sights that fast, you know. And I, I think a lot of people feel that way. They see really high performance shooters like yourself, and they, you know, I sit there and I ask myself, is he is he really picking up his sights and getting picture, you know, that quickly with that gun? 
or is he just get it on that initial, you know, on that initial presentation, and then he's just really good at recoil management? Is it maybe, and maybe the answer varies depending on the the, the distance, of the target, or the size of the target, and the difficulty of the shot. Talk a little bit about just kind of how you would explain your process for acquiring sight picture. Acquiring a sight picture—that's that's a broad term. Uh, the application of the target, I guess you would say, is going to determine how much you're going to see. If it's a relatively big target and it's relatively close, I don't have to see a lot. I just need a reference on where everything is, and you can make a relatively good shot with a small amount of time. You give, a, uh, say, a headshot at 30 yards. Well, that's a totally different scenario. Now you have to see the corners of the site. You want to see the top of the site. You want to see the rear site. You have to have everything perfectly stopped, execute a good trigger pull, get the job, get the job done. So what you see uh, uh, when you see professional shooters or shooters who have who have advanced in the in the game, they're just going to put the minimum amount of effort to get what they need out, out of the target. So if, if like in three gun now, a lot of targets are two shots anywhere. So you don't really need a whole bunch of uh, anything to get that job done. If you're shooting an A zone with hardcover or no shoot at 30 yards, well, you're going to have to stop. You're going to want to see the corners of the site, and you have to see everything clear just for a moment to execute a good, a good, a good trigger prep and a follow through and get two shots on it or whatever. So it depends on the uh, level of difficulty of the shot, the distance, the lighting. Uh, it's a it's a big topic. Yeah, and, and I think there's a couple of keys here that I want to extract from what you said and kind of regurgitate the, these. And if you have something to add, that's fine. But what, one is that there's a skill in understanding um, how much margin for error there is in the sight picture, right? Okay. Knowing that if I pick up my front sight, that a good high contrast, and it's it's kind of sort of in the notch, that rare notch, or it's, you know, I, I, I can pick it up somewhat. I know that my margin for error at this distance with this target size is X, and so that's acceptable to make this shot. Uh, and so just kind of having a sense for, you know, how much flexibility you have in the sight picture and, and how, you know, uh, to your point, you know, you said seeing the corners, right? Knowing that, okay, I, I need this fully in the notch. I need the horizontal to be even, right? I, I really need to, to pick it up just right versus not at this, this particular shot. I have this much margin for error. So I pick it up. Oh, that's enough. I can squeeze the shot, right? And then the second thing, and I think this is equally important is there's, there's, I think there's a skill, uh, and I, I call it a skill, but you know, we could call it experience or whatever we want to call it just relative to, um, being able to look at a, a target arrangement, a, a, a phase of fire, you know, you're on a particular, you know, set, uh, uh, what's, what's what I'm looking for a competitive shooting term, you know, stage. yeah, you're on a stage. Thank you. You're at a, you're at a stage. And there's a certain skill to be able to look at that stage and say, okay, I know that I can run these ones, you know, in, in these split times, I can look at those targets. I say, I'm going to have to slow down. My split times on those targets are going to have to be this. And you kind of, you know, that, that's something that comes with time and experience, I would say, right? Do you see newer shooters? Do they, they struggle with that balance? Well, they, right. They haven't under, they're, they're not, they haven't achieved the understanding of uh, seeing more than one target at a time. So they, they fixate and they look at spots on targets and, and set of targets. Uh, and you, then you get visually locked into a target where you shouldn't be. So experience will teach you how to how to see target scenarios. But I, I see everything in split times. When I'm shooting a revolver, it's all cycle time. I never want to break cycle on the trigger. So I see targets, you know, within three foot of one another, and it's a relatively open target. It's just about as fast as I can pull the trigger. You know, mm -hmm. 
you know, the good comfortable pace, you know, you can run them, run them at that. Uh, the target's even closer. You can stand up on it a little bit more. Uh, but uh, if they're at distance, I, I always see targets as uh, as split times, not necessarily as a target. So yeah, yeah, which the, makes sense. And the more you shoot, the, what the big thing about a sight picture is, everybody knows what a sight picture is. The difference between is those who can read the shot off the sight picture. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Well I, said. If I have three targets in a row and I want to put two on each, and I saw the same down on the target, I could have shot that target three times because I've spent it returned back to the target and I haven't moved yet, so I haven't gained anything. The, 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 the idea of a sight, even like when you're talking about a high-vis sight, what's really good about it is you can self-focus, and as soon as you cook that second round off, visually I'm on the second target, and I just watch it streak into the second target, and I keep on the, on the trigger, and I keep in cycle, and trigger pull even doesn't even come into the into the game anymore. It, just, it, it becomes a visual game. Uh, I got to get the sight to the next target because the gun's going to go off. So it's sort of like your sights are your gas pedal. They are. Yeah, you, you, what you can see, uh, you know, see what you can shoot and uh, shoot what you can see. Yeah, yeah. You know, so, uh, yes, it's, it becomes a second nature. This, the, the trigger coincides with the sight. You don't even think yeah. about it. Well, this is, this is interesting to me because, you know, in the competitive context, you, you generally, you know your stage, you know, what, you know what's going to be required of you. And so you kind of you map that out and you kind of have a pre-context, you know, visual for that. In a defensive uh, context, it's just pure instinct, you know, to be able to immediately say this distance, that shot, this gun, acquire sights, and know what's required to do all that. Well, in that kind of scenario, if you want to put it in, in what you call defensive shooting, or if you look at law enforcement, uh, they have a very poor hit ratio. And a lot of that is vision. It's, it's, it's not a lot of it. It's all vision-related skills because in their game, if they're going to fire their firearm, they have to be 100% justified. So they go into a scenario looking at the target extremely hard to justify the shot. And all of a sudden, now they have to apply horsepower to the target. So their vision never comes back to what they're shooting. And they look through or over and not at the site. So the hit ratio is very poor. But in their game, they have to account for everything that they do. And they really haven't been taught how to visually I interact. Uh, they teach them how to shoot, but not how to see. Mm. And shooting yeah. is all, is all, all your breakthroughs in shooting are going to come in, in visual moments. Uh, everybody has the same technique, but those that can see faster and understand vision skills and drills and how to get faster, they, they will achieve the next level. Yeah. It's yeah. all related. So everything is vision related. Jerry, I'm I'm curious. Uh, you showed us your carry pistol just a minute ago with the uh, Lightwave yep. H3s. Yep. Do you use different sights for a competition gun? I know you shoot a dot, you know, a red dot, a lot these days. But do do you use a different sight setup for a competition gun versus your everyday carry gun? Uh, not really. Uh, I try to keep it mostly all the same. I don't shoot pretty much. Uh, anymore because I just can't see well enough. So the red dots come in in three gun. I shoot open. I try to shoot in many open division categories. That's what I call the old man division. When you get <laughs> 60, it's really hard to have enough correction to see target and sight as well as you you know to be in in the winning circle anymore. So with the dot, I can shoot both eyes open. I don't have that contrast problem. 
But with metallic sights now, you have to have so much magnification to see the sights. The target is so blurry, you have to shoot. Uh, uh, you really have to shoot both eyes open. That's an interesting question. You got a second? I'll show you my shooting glasses. Yes, actually, we so, we had several listeners here asking about shooting one eye open, two eyes open, top focals, magnification. That whole topic seems to be uh, very buzzing. Yeah. So uh, what I've what I've done in the last I don't know 10, 12 years is uh, these are made by Decot, and I'll have a whole lens set up to see the front sight better than the regular the, the regular uh, the regular eye correction or what you call prescription. So if I go to a tournament and I'm going to shoot metallic sights, I put my metallic sight lens in. And if it's just regular prescription and I can shoot open, I'll just shoot with my regular prescription. So with this, I can see the sight not exactly perfect, but I can see enough of it to make a good reference shot. If you have a, if you have too much correction and you see the front sight exactly square and, and perfectly focused, you're not going to see the target at all. Mm. So it's a little bit of a compromise. And if you're lucky, you can come in, you can go into your optometrist with your firearm of choice <laughs> and diopters <laughs> in there, and you, you can find a sweet spot. If you can't do that, what I usually what I advise is to take like a ruler and find where the front sight would be, and just make an artificial front sight of some sort, and then go into your optometrist. And have him put the diopters until you have what you think would be the right combination for you hmm. uh, yeah. to try. So, like so it was, life's a compromise. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, but I guess I want you, Jerry, to keep talking about that a little bit because on on the defensive side, if you're in a if you're in a life threatening situation, you can't switch out glasses, right? You have what you brought to the fight. Uh, so, you know what? How do you think that changes? you know, the advice you might give to someone who is in that same situation you're at. Well, that's, that's what's good about the, uh, the, the tritium fired site, especially in low light. If I can see just the, where everything's located, I can be pretty effective 10, 15 yards. And within five feet, it's just going to be as good as anything. Uh, you don't really need to see a whole lot to get the job done, but you got to have a reference. So even if my sites are, uh, I call them fuzzy, because with with uh, say like you're uh, the tank worst case scenario, you put your glasses on and you grab your handgun, it's gonna look like little fuzzy dots. But that's not a problem. If I can line up those little fuzzy dots, I'm gonna have a way good enough reference inside of a room to get a job done. Yeah. So, yep. Yep. Exactly. You got you gotta have a reference. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why that that those high visibility tritium sites become even that much more critical. When you're when you're in that in that scenario, even you can you can also fire even if you're not fully mounted up to eye level. Mm. You can get a reference, make a straight line shot. You're gonna you're gonna be doing some good. So it doesn't have to be up to eye, eye level to get to get efficient hits at close distances. So that's yeah. another thing to concern yourself with. Yeah, yeah, Jerry. Um, something I, I'm gonna kind of shift gears a little bit here. Uh, we talk about like site acquisition, site picture uh, quite a bit. You even touched a little bit on transitions and kind of how you view transitions, which uh, if I understood correctly, you basically said you start at one target, you, you have your sights there, your eyes go to the next target, and once you see those sights come onto that target, you're pulling the trigger, right? Yeah. Um, what I want to ask you about is a little bit more on like what what it takes to get kind of to a level, you know, a, a good level. Like, I mean, I don't know that anybody can ever eclipse uh, where, where you were at uh, in your career, but uh, 
something I sometimes think about quite a bit is we have to practice enough to a point where the shooting skills, the various skills, need to become more and more automatic. Uh, so I'm curious, you know, your thoughts on on that, on the on the idea of ingraining, you know, certain shooting skills, techniques, whatever that is, deep enough into, I guess, your subconscious, into that muscle memory that it becomes automatic. And and what some of your thoughts are or tips about how to be able to do that better? Well, uh, okay, that that's a broad question. <laughs> What what I've what I've done in my career, give you an idea. I've probably I've I've evolved in probably five different different shooting styles over the years. Mm. What we come up with, I, I I try never to fall in love with my own invention. If I was to stay at the level I and the and the skill level I was say 15 years ago, I would be very poorly received in the competition world right now because I wouldn't be I wouldn't be competitive in stance or vision drills or anything. So what? You do as a competitor, you have to evolve. And I always try to make myself believe that if I think I know something, I'm wrong. So when I go to range, I want to always try something new. I'll try this way, that, that way. If I take a class and an instructor tells me to do it this way, I'm going to go home and try exactly the other way and see why it's not working. So in my, in my shooting stance and, and the way I hold the pistol, a lot of people say, well, I want to hold this pistol this way because it's comfortable. It's got nothing to do with applying you to the target. Comfort has nothing to do with how you hold a gun. If it doesn't line up with your dominant eye, you're 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 you've offset yourself already to a to a to a negative. So you have to have the, everything lined up with your dominant eye. That's that vision thing we talked about earlier. If you're not centered in your vision with what you're shooting, you'll never achieve the next level. So it's always a vision-related drill on how you get to the next level. It should become automatic. You're shooting. Uh, how it feels in your hand has to has nothing to do with how the gun aligns with your dominant eye. Mm. Interesting, it's, Jerry. Do you call your shots when you're shooting? Uh, meaning that you you're going you, to town and you go, "Yep, that one's good. That one's good," and you move on. Uh, you have you have to. What, what you what you find yourself as a competitor? That's going to be your that's going to be your weak link. You see, guys, I, I call them flamethrowers. They'll go through a stage of fire and they'll absolutely crush it. And they'll have really three good stages. And then the fourth or fifth one or somewhere in, in the 10 stages of the match, they'll have a 50%. And you can't, in the competitive world, you can't have the 50% stage. It's better not to win a stage, but always be in the, in the, in the 90, 95% bracket. And don't try to hero a stage, but always, always have a visual of what you're doing. I call it shooting scared. If I shot a stage and I came back and I, and I and I and I went through it in my in my mind again, and I couldn't tell you where every bullet went. I shot scared. Mm. I didn't have time to be visually patient to call the round. And you can do that every once in a while. It's called a glory run. You hero it. You know, you get to the last stage. You know, and you need a ninety-eight percent to win the match, and you're shooting three percent over what you can do. And sometimes you ring it, and sometimes you don't. Odds are you won't. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> That you, know, you but that's the that's the live, living within your vision. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you always be able to call the shot. That's one thing my wife Kay could always do. She could come back and tell you where every bullet went, and that's how you build your foundation on being a competitor. Where you you, you never shoot scared. Yeah. So the way I you know we, we've talked quite a bit about vision. About you you need to be able to obviously see what you need to see 
to shoot the target that's appropriate for whatever difficulty of shot that 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 it is. But talking about calling shots is kind of almost like seeing a little bit, just for a brief moment, what's happening during and just after that shot's fired. You know, a lot of shooters have a hard enough time just learning to see their sights the way they need to to shoot to make the shot in the first place. How do you explain to someone about how to learn how to call shots, if that makes sense? Yeah, yeah that's a uh, that takes a lot of that takes a lot of a lot of a lot of a lot of ammo. It takes hmm. a lot of ammo. Stood in front of that bullet trap I, that I made years ago and put a lot of rounds into it, just trying to get visual clues on how the how the gun react when I'm seeing in between shots the way you can start to repeat it. Uh, so when you go to a match, there shouldn't be anything that you don't know and understand. It, it shouldn't be a visual problem anywhere. So if you haven't rehearsed it in matches, uh, uh, I had a good discussion with a, with a former class uh, about learning how to miss. And he said, well, you should never reinforce a negative. And I said, well, how many times have you missed in a match? And you had to pick it up. So how do you know how to pick up a shot? You don't know how to miss. Make any sense? <laughs> uh-huh. so, if you, so we say let's take let's have a scenario I got a plate rack I'm on the third plate now obviously when the gun fired I don't think it was on the plate so visually do I go down range and, and confirm that miss do I stay on the side do I finish the plate rack do I go back do I stay in cycle and you're going to come across that in the match a lot of times so if you don't understand how to how to come back from bad sight picture how to pick it up and stay in cycle visually uh, that's going to be your weak link. Any anytime you have a reactionary target, its job is to make you look at it. And once you've looked at it, you're looking through your sights or you're looking over. Either to shoot high or you shoot wild. So, I'm sure you've run across that in competitions also. Oh yes. So. <laughs> you know, and, and one thing that seems to to trip shooters up, including myself, quite a bit is let's let's use that plate rack as an example. And you're going along, and you get that, you know. First, first plate down, second plate down, third plate down, sometimes fourth plate down. Everything's going great. And then, I don't know, if you just get overconfident, you get a little too excited, and then you then you start missing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You were finished before you were finished. Right. That's, that's pretty classic. You're trying to race for the holster. And I've yet to get an award for being the first man in the holster. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, true, true that. Uh, I have to laugh. Yeah, we used to laugh about that a lot. You know, uh, you, you you got in the holster quickest, but you didn't finish the stage of fire. So, yeah, uh, every shot, the most important shot is the one you're about to make. Yeah, that's uh, so, always remember that. You know, so easy to say, hard to do. We're all guilty of it, so we just try to minimize it. Yeah, no, that's 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 good advice for sure. Um, shifting the gears a little bit, I, I know I've been asking the questions now for a minute and after Jacob had his turn, apparently. Uh, so Jerry, what are your thoughts about everything you've learned through the years? And I, I have a tendency to ask broad questions apparently, but uh, so I'm going to ask another broad question out of everything you've learned through the years about shooting, uh, you know, about handling a gun, all of that, all of your experience, which heavily is obviously involved in the competitive side of things, but yet I know you're very passionate about the Second Amendment and about concealed carry and about carrying a gun for, for defense. What sorts of things would you say, I mean, as it relates to carrying a gun for defense, uh, do you feel like as far as shooting the gun that mostly everything you've learned translates over into defensive shooting a gun? Would you say there's anything different 
uh, obviously tactics and, and, and all that's different, you know, but, uh, you know, you got a game versus tactics in a defensive situation. But as far as shooting the gun, do you feel like it's pretty much the same for you from competition shooting to defensive shooting or handling of that gun? Uh, they're all the mechanics are the same, but the stress level is going to be elevated way high. So if, you, if you're a concealed carry guy and you've never competed, you really don't know who you are as a person until you get under stress. I've seen some really good guys, uh, and you get them on the line shooting man against man like on a plate rack, and all that technique falls apart. So can you only imagine if that would be a real scenario where, you know, you're going to receive fire while you're trying to give <laughs> a little love to the target. So the whole idea is you should go out and always stress yourself beyond what you're comfortable with. That's the whole idea about competition. I know it's, I know it's a game, but you've, you've competed. You, you've seen the stress. You've felt it. Without, without putting yourself in, into that theater of, uh, of uh, stress, you don't know how you're going to do. I've traveled a yeah. thousand miles, missed really fast. And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking, here I am, you know. I put all this time and effort into it, and I'm over here, and I'm not doing well. Why is that? And if, you, if you're going to be a concealed carry guy, you're not going to ever go out and stress yourself, and you think you're going to be John Wayne when, it, when the moment comes, you're probably not going to be John Wayne. A lot of people are guilty. You know, I'm, I'm, I would be guilty of it, too, if I didn't compete or go out and do classes with other people and, and actually learn where you are. I've seen a lot of police officers, and I, and I, and I love police officers. Don't get me wrong, but they, they're so underfunded that they never really receive proper training. I mean, these guys are willing. They're out there doing their duty. You know what I mean? But they they don't they don't receive the uh, the level of training they 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 should get because of the uh, the budgets. So the, a good way to do it would be just find your competition that you're not comfortable with and go see what you can do. Go to some speed shooting. That's one thing about action shooting. The scenario like I'm sitting at this table. Next thing you know, I'm drawing. I'm shooting targets. It's kind of a, like a real life scenario would be, and it's under the stress of a competition because you want to do well. And there's people watching, and it, you know how that feeds off of uh, the pressure curve there. So if you can't do well there, what are your odds of actually doing this when you when you need it the most? So you should always stress yourself. That's one thing good about action shooting. The, uh, the shooting scenario is very so much no light, low light, flashlight, whatever, running and gunning. It's just uh, it's good training for, for the stress level. Uh, mm. We're not all going to be John Wayne. <laughs> well, no, yeah, there's only one John Wayne as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Jerry, on uh, the, the same kind of line of thinking, kind of comparing competitive shooting with defensive shooting, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about um, firearm uh, modifications or upgrades. You know, so what what are some of the modifications that you you might make? You know, on on your on a defensive handgun, a carry gun versus a competitive gun. Oh, we know you we know you you go for a good pair of aftermarket sights, but what else? Yeah. Uh... I want a good trigger on it. You know, uh, a lot of, I've shot a, I've shot a few rounds. So I want my, I want my, uh, carry gun to feel similar to my competition gun. I think I can handle the situation to keep my finger out of trigger guard. If you're not up to that level to where you can have a good trigger, uh, you well, don't get you a good trigger, <laughs> but the gun has to be first thing on a carry gun has to be 100% reliable. Accuracy is totally secondary. Totally secondary. Uh, I don't care if this thing shoots six inches at 25 yards. If it shoots 100% of the time, that's what I'm looking for. We can strong hand. And that's one 
kind of thing you want to set your equipment on. If you're going to carry a pistol, you want to go out and shoot it limp wrist, weak hand, unsupported, uh, see if that thing is going to cycle. My own carry gun, personally, I, I throw it in the freezer overnight. I live right here where I can shoot in the backyard. So I throw the ammo and the gun in the freezer overnight, and I step out, and I want to burn a magazine with my weak hand unsupported to see if it's going to function from number one to the last one in the mag. And that sounds kind of silly, but I've done enough classes in different environments to know that might be what you come up with. If it's in adverse condition, it's going to be good when I've got two hands on it. Everything is going to run the way I want it to. So, and also shoot what you, if you're going to go out and train with your carry gun, shoot the same ammunition that you're going to, that you're going to carry and not some cheap ammo, uh, ball ammo that you can get for a dollar on And then you're going to put some trick plus P plus in it or something that the gun hadn't seen before. And that totally changes the cycle speed and the extraction cycle, the magazine speed, how it feeds. And it's just, uh, so if you're going to carry good ammunition, go out and shoot you a couple of hundred rounds of it to make sure the gun is going to want it and it's going to function. It has to function. It has to function. It can be really tricked, but above all, I've seen a lot of trick guns die in competitions. <laughs> yeah, I bet. <laughs> you know, <laughs> So it has to function. It has, you want to shoot the same ammo you're going to carry and shoot enough of it till you know everything, all your mags are going to work, number your magazines. Uh, trigger pull is more important than side alignment. Mm. You, you want to see the sights. Yeah. You said number your magazines, and I know that was like you said it in passing, and I, I'd, I'd just love to hear more. So you number your magazines. And you do this both with your, your carry gun and your competitive right. gun, and, and talk through a little bit, you know, it might be a two-second explanation, but why do you do that? Well, ma magazines are the heart and soul of a pistol, and uh, not all magazines are the same. Uh, just like anything else in life, they're not all created equal. You might have one that has a little out of tolerance or the follow-in right or the spring, and you go to shoot it, and it gives you a little malfunction on the range, and you go like, well, I don't know what that was, and then you load it up, and then you put it in your gun. I don't want that magazine. <laughs> I want I want to know what the magazine If you're in a competition... All my mags are loaded. Say I'm shooting a stage and I should have a, uh, a bobble and I can't explain it. I'm going to look at that magazine. I'm going to go back and take it apart, look at it, see what's wrong. Maybe the spring has taken a set. Maybe the follower is out of spec. I'm going to find out the issues. The lips aren't the right dimension. I'm going to find out what's the problem. Or I'm not going to use that magazine. I'm just going to relegate it to practice. I'm not going to take it into a, into a carry scenario. The other thing I do on my on my ammunition, if I'm a, on my carry gun, I like to drop check every round I put in it. It's an old holdover from the competition game. Everybody, you know, you should drop check every round you put in your competition gun. So you buy a box of factory ammunition, and you don't even look at it, and, and there you are. You've got a you got a bad round when you need it the least. And one thing one thing I, I have to brag on Hornady is they hand inspect every round of ammunition before it puts in it's put in a box. Yeah. That's really that's hard to believe. I was just through the factory the other day, and they have they have I don't know how many women there sit all day long and look at ammunition before they put it in a box. Yeah, that's impressive. That's a great thing. And I yet when I get it, I'm going to look at it again because everything I'm going to do, all my training and everything I've ever done, is based on that one cartridge waiting in the chamber. So if I don't give it a little bit of love, who else will? Yeah. You know, just take it out of a box and throw it in a bag and say I'm ready to go. I've seen enough bad ammunition in my time. I, I want to take a look at it. I yeah. want to make sure it's going to be my. Make sense? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Love it. You know, you know, 
and, and by drop check, just in case for listeners don't know what you're referring to, you're talking about taking a round and dropping into the chamber of your barrel, making sure that it goes in uh, freely, right? Yeah, you can do that, or you can buy you can buy a chamber gauge. Right. Everybody yeah. sells them. Several companies that make them. Hornady has them. You can buy them just about any uh, uh, host um, at wholesale, like Brownells, or you, you can go to Midway and buy them. Uh, just drop check the ammo, you know, it's just, uh, I always want to do a look on everything and in matches, I'll sit the, the night before and go drop check every round or put them in a gun, you know, cause that's, uh, that's how I make my money. Yep. Yep. <laughs> a, mo- a moment ago, you, you said a, a big time truth bomb, Jerry, you said that basically trigger control or trigger manipulation is more important than aiming the gun. Which, right. uh, you know, we had Rob Latham on the podcast once, and he said something very similar. Uh, so he, this next question, I think, is kind of related to that as far as what what do you suggest to a shooter that's struggling with anticipation problems? Meaning that they're anticipating that shot right right at the moment they're trying to make that that gun go bang. They're you know doing the the classic anticipate anticipation flinch. Uh, how do you suggest that someone work on correcting the anticipation? That, that that problem comes in into play on on shooters. Uh, I've been plagued by it forever, and it, it'll it'll come into me when I when I expect when I expect it the least. So I'm always ha- always have to be on guard for it. Uh, you go out and you do a bunch of rattle battle stuff really quick. It doesn't take a long time. But the only thing you can do is work through it and really want to feel the face of the trigger. Uh, it's really instinctive to slap a trigger when you, when the sight is alignment is in perfect alignment. And that's exactly what you don't want to do. Yeah, no one can hold a gun that tight and have a perfect sight alignment and then slap a trigger and have it stay on target. So you have to have trigger cycle. And yeah, I think most people who are trigger slappers, they've never actually, uh, I, I, I want to say this. They actually never feel the face of the trigger. Mm. Look at the sight so hard, and then they just run at the trigger to get it to get it over with to get the shot. When what they perceive is a good sight picture, and that's another thing you really want to guard against. I used to go out and say I have a I have an ipsic target at, at ten yards. I'd want to see how much shake I could have and still stay in the a box. And you'd be surprised. I, I can move it this much and still be in the a box. I don't need a perfect side alignment. And what happens when people try to get perfect, they get rough. And that's not that's not the reality of it. The, reali- the reality is, let's go out there and shake this thing and just let it fire. 50% of the time, you're through the center of the target. And that starts relaxing the trigger finger to, uh, I don't have to be perfect. You don't have to be perfect to hit a target. You just accept your wobble and you, and you live with it. And you just squeeze the trigger or press it or pull it. Whatever you want to call it, everybody has their own term for it. But the whole thing is not to disturb what you're seeing and just let the gun fire. Uh, but that's hard. That's hard to overcome. You have to really want to. You have to really want to overcome uh, another way of training that way. But <laughs> I've had we had we had some we had we had a police officer on our range. He had a really bad flinch, and the more we shot, the worse he got. And uh, and I'll, I'll, I've had this happen too. I, I call it shooting yourself stupid. 
you go out on a long practice session, you get really rough. You, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Sure. You get really snappy on the trigger. So I brought him around the barn. I said, man, load you up a couple of magazines. Come back here with me. And we got on the back of the barn. And I said, okay, get your pistol up eye level. And he brought it up. I said, okay, close your eyes. Close your eyes. Don't see anything. Pull the trigger. And he shot. And he never flinched with his eyes closed. And the first time we ever felt the trigger pull. He got the grit and he looked at me and said, you know, that's the first time I've ever felt the trigger. I said, that's because you had so much intent of having that sight perfectly in line and you cared nothing about the trigger and you were just slapping it because you thought you had to be perfect. So when your vision turned off, he actually could feel the trigger and he got back in cycle and he came back on the range and had a good day. So I don't know if you've ever shot with your eyes closed. It gives you a really good trigger technique. And it tells you a lot about who you are and what, what are you trying to achieve that day on the range. And uh, I find myself when I'm doing high volume practice, sometimes I'll just get off in a corner and just close my eyes off and get back, get back to reality and just rip the trigger and feel it actually move and creep along and, and shoot it. And then use a couple of rounds like that, you know, bring your vision back into play, shoot again, close your vision off, feel it, come back in the moment. You'll never flinch with your eyes closed. Hardly anybody I've ever seen will flinch with their eyes closed. I know that sounds silly, but uh, you don't have the coordination of the sight to the target. You're not trying to be perfect. You're just feeling the trigger. Let the gun go off. Let the gun go off. Let the gun go off. Yep. Yeah. That's a that's a drill we love to run. Uh, Jerry, I'm going to make us change uh, a yep. little bit too here. I'm going to I'm going to throw a tangent. I would love to hear some things that are in your range bag. I imagine when you go to, you know, you can go out your back door and shoot, of course, but I'm sure you have a range bag and there's some stuff in it. I, I'm guessing there's guns and ammo and eyes and ears, but what are some of the other like things that are just, you know, you get to the range and if you forgot that item, you're like, ah, darn it. I forgot it. What, what are some of those things that you just love having at the range? I've got a Leatherman with all the tips, the handy tool. You usually have a couple of pack of Allen wrenches, uh, uh, a whole set of different uh, magpul rails for the rifles, attachment points, uh, oil, uh, extra batteries, Allen wrenches, screwdrivers, small screwdrivers for the red dots. Uh, just basic stuff that you're going to eventually find you're going to need. Yeah. What uh, Do you have a favorite uh, shot timer you run? I've got an old... Uh, Pack timer, yeah. pack graph timer, the big bulky yeah. nine. <laughs> Been around since the beginning of time. I've seen that in your videos. That brick. I get I, the, the last class I did, the old boy said, uh, <laughs> "You know, they made them that big." <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I've, I've used the. Uh, let me see. I got one coming here. That's my old trusty timer. There it is. Timer chronograph. Hadn't quit yet. So, still there. That's a plug for Pack Timer. <laughs> I love it. So, I'm going to turn us a little bit. And again, and this is a question from a, from a listener that sent us in. They would love to know if you think there is a kind of natural progression of skills within all the competitive shooting um, sports. You know, USPSA, three gun, IPSA, you know, et cetera. So, I mean, when, when someone says, I want to get into competitive shooting, do you see it almost like, well, you should probably start here and then from here you go to there? Or or is it more of a, you know, pick your poison based on what you're trying to get out of this? Uh, it's probably a pick your poison thing. But but there, 
Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much that. You'll get a guy interested in three gun, and he'll he'll do a three gun. I, I started in handgun back in the in the in the in back in the seventies when handgun shooting just the action game really started. That's back when Cooper and them guys and uh, we were doing the leather slap and USPSA. I mean, hadn't even started yet. Uh, so, mm-hmm. so I was a handgun guy before I was three gun. But I hunted. I always hunted. So long guns with was. was Something I did long before I had a handgun. So, 22 rifles and BB guns and shotguns and hunting ducks and stuff. So, the long guns were there before the handgun. So, the handgun is a lot harder to, to use, and that's something you'd have to dedicate more time to. You'll find that the rifle and the, the shotgun is easy, but the handgun part is always going to be the hard link in the, in the, in the three. Yeah. A lot more time and dedication to the pistol. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. What what recommendations do you have, Jerry, about uh, choosing a firearm for competition? And then secondary to that, what recommendations do you have about choosing a firearm for self-defense? Well, I haven't been in the game forever. Uh, 1911s are the easiest handguns to shoot because of the trigger action. Uh, not necessarily the most reliable. I know a lot of 1911 guys are going to cringe when I say that. <laughs> The, uh, but the current generation of uh, polymer pistols are more reliable and more economical and easier to live with than a 1911 will ever be. That's a, that's a fact. So you can buy good pistols, uh, Smith & Wesson M&Ps, Glocks, uh, Springfield Armory XDs. Uh, the current generation of polymer guns, and there's such a broad spectrum of them now, they've just, uh, they, they run with just minimum input. You know, uh, 1911s are a finicky. The, uh, the extractors are the weak point, but the triggers are the best. You can't yeah. beat a 1911 trigger. That's just uh, the way it is, you know. But uh, <laughs> the polymer guns can come really close. And uh, my M&Ps, uh, I, I don't even know if my M&P has an extractor. It's such a maintenance-free gun that it's, that it's just almost... Uh, the magazines are super quality. That's one thing about a... About that has really changed since I started shooting was the, the, the quality and the understanding on how to build a good pistol magazine. Mm. And that's silly, but uh, back when 1911s were military issue, they had a very crude magazine. Uh, it wasn't until the action sports came along where people like Bill Wilson and Chip McCormick and all these guys built the parallel feed lift, high quality magazines with good followers and springs that made the 45 reliable. Yeah. That's just that's just a fact. Yeah. But the polymer, the polymer guns, not like my MP pistols. I've had this gun. I've shot in competitions for I don't know how long. Same magazine bodies. I just put a boot on them, put an aftermarket spring, and uh, I've been living with them for uh, I don't know how many years now. And uh, that's an MP limited magazine. It's a great magazine. It's just uh, well designed and maintenance free, and you can get you can get into the guns relatively cheap. Uh, a lot of guys think they're going to buy their way into a performance. I would suggest that you get a, a good functioning gun that's 100% reliable and buy a stock of ammunition and go out and shoot it. <laughs> Learn what you need. And uh, a lot of, a lot of, you know, when you when you go uh, when you go into the bait shops to go fishing, uh, fishermen, not the fish. So. <laughs> so Get into the sport, see what you need. There's a lot of stuff you don't really need. 
Yeah. 100%, 100% reliable gun and a mountain of ammunition is going to get you a lot further than buying a $4,000 pistol not shooting it often. So, you know, that's one thing I really appreciate about watching you shoot, especially in these three gun matches, Jerry, is, is you're running an MMP. You're not running a 2011. You know, like there, there's definitely people in the, in the in the three gun sport, especially that would kind of almost have you believe that to be competitive, you need to run a 2011. I've been well. That uh, that MP I'm shooting, I, I had put an Apex barrel in it, and I it's one of their it, it's it's one of their machinist or gunsmith fit barrels. So I, I just went at it with my uh, wrote it in there on what I thought how it was supposed to fit, and then I read the instructions later. <laughs> But uh, the Apex Barrel uh, changes that M&P into a, a uh, uh, vastly superior accurate pistol to what the production gun is. And that's something you want to realize, too. When, when, when gun companies build guns, like the M&P, it's, it, it, it's a duty gun. So the lock time on that pistol is, is set to where a woman can shoot it, a guy can shoot it hot or cold, and it's going to function. So a target guy like, like me, I want to make it, I want to shoot like this at 50. So when you put an apex barrel, you're going to do that. Is it going to hurt the reliability? So far for me and the way I hold it, it doesn't. But uh, you have to remember that most duty guns are set up to function when they're dirty, hot, or cold. So the cycle, the uh, lock time is going to be less, and it's set up to to uh, to uh, to make that 100% reliability. That's like uh, you take a match grade 1911 pistol. It's all hand fitted, minimum tolerance. You would never want to take it into a desert environment and shoot it because it would uh, wouldn't run for long the old gi gun that rattles 100 percent interchangeable parts that's more of an old uh, duty gun you're going to stick in your holster it's going to get dirty you're going you're going to pull it out it's still going to work it's probably going to shoot like five inches at 20 20 yards but it's going to go bang at the time so you got to fit your equipment to the application so is that did i, did I answer that right that's yeah. uh, I, I get kind of off cue yeah. sometimes Fun. It's good. It's good advice. Uh, you know, like you said, uh, you fit the gun to the application, and uh, you know, like I said, it, I I'm shooting a polymer framed gun. You know, and I've been tempted by that. Uh, you know, 2011 bug. You know, I, I see these guns and I shoot them, and they are they are amazing guns. But I I don't have the budget for uh, for one of those yet. So. So I, <laughs> I'm running a much cheaper gun, and, and, and you inspire me because I see how well you run it. I go, skill trumps gear. I just need to work harder at my skill. <laughs> Buy that mountain of ammo. <laughs> <laughs> are, are you liquidating anytime soon? <laughs> yeah, ammo companies will love you for it. <laughs> Jerry, I would love to hear a little bit about your training protocol, and, and maybe you might even – talk a little bit about how that's changed over the years. Maybe, you know, you know, when you were first starting out, what, what that might've looked like, but, but today, maybe if, if someone came and said, Hey, what, what should my training protocol really look like? Or maybe how many hours is that? Or what exactly should I be training to really build the right skills? You know, how, how would you respond to that? That's another very broad question, uh, uh, question. Uh, and the answer would be like when I, when I was shooting revolver competitively really hard, I spent a lot of time shooting a revolver. I mean, weekend strong hand. You couldn't have a weak link in your performance. So uh, uh, my, my uh, strong hand weekend was very, very good. I spent a lot of time on it. And like the revolver, the big thing about a revolver, it's going to always be empty. Six or eight shots doesn't last long. 
So the ability to reload it fast was going to be the, the winning factor in the match. If I had a stage of fire that hit 30 rounds, usually I could beat the other guy three-tenths of a second or so per reload, and it's going to be like five reloads, so the second and a half on the stage right there. So you, if you look at a three-gun competition now, if you had a tactical shotgun, your ability to load the shotgun on the move is going to be a, very much a deciding factor in a shotgun-only stage. So you'd really want to practice on your reloading. Because that's mm -hmm. what the length is going to be. Have, yeah. more than one, have, have more than one technique of reloading a shotgun. Uh, I know later, well, we were shooting at Rock Castle, and you're inside of an automobile, and you can't flip the gun to quad load. So you just reached in a pouch and came in from the bottom with her, with a weak hand, put five in and shot. So the ability to, be, to interact with the gun on different levels different techniques uh, on that stage, you know, made her a winner that day, you know, so you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You, know, you can't have a weak link because that's one thing about practical shooting. Sooner or later, you're going to come into that stage of fire to where I'm shooting off of a rooftop and I've never tried that before. Well, you know what I mean? So you want to go out and practice on different props. You, uh, Handling the firearm is, is, a, is, a big, is, a, is a big thing. You want to know how to handle it well, uh, different shooting positions, uh, weak shoulder, strong shoulder. Yeah. So it's about, it's about identifying you know, what is my current biggest weak link and then just training that until, until I iron it out to the next one. Yeah. 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 Last question, Jerry, then we need to let you go. Um, and I think I already know the answer to this, and I think you held it up for us once already, but uh, maybe folks didn't notice or catch on to that. What is your everyday carry, Jerry? It kind of depends how I'm dressed and where I'm going. Uh, this is my uh, everyday open. If I'm on the place, you'll probably see me with this. It's a Safarland clip-on belt holster, and I've got my m uh compact. It's an older generation gun. It's got the... Uh, the H3 sights on it, the high-vis sight, is magnaported. I'll try to have everything I shoot magnaported if I can. Uh, it's like cheating. <laughs> you know, if I, if I went to a competition and I and uh, I tried to shoot this in, in the limited division, they wouldn't let me because it's ported. And I'm mm. thinking, well, if I actually use this thing for what it's intended for, I want to cheat as much as I can. So if anything, that adds 20% to how fast I can shoot it and how accurate I can shoot it. In rapid fire, I, I want it, you know. So all my carry gun, my little shield, Smith and Wesson shield, the magnaported, my competition guns. So this one is also it's got the H3 on it. It's got a a laser grip, uh, uh, a laser on it. So uh, I want to cheat as much as I can. It's got a little bit of a trigger job on it, not much. It's a good smooth trigger. So that's what you see. It'll have it'll have one of the uh, 135 grain. Uh, Critical duty ammunition in it. Same thing the FBI finally adopt, uh, 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 has taken that as their service round. So I've carried that for a couple of years now. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Worked pretty good. Yeah. Awesome. Jerry, we appreciate you so much for uh, doing this uh, podcast with us today uh, and, and also the patience with getting it all set up and the kinks worked out. <laughs> Technology. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. But it's still a wonderful thing. You know, we don't have to fly down to Louisiana just so we can record something with you. <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I also wanted to mention that we have uh, I have training videos on onverters.com. Yep. And, and uh, if you mention Jerry 20, you get a 20% discount. 
So uh, that's available. And we also have our YouTube channel called Sherry Mitchell, if you want to. Yeah, we're, we're getting close to about 1 million subscribers now, so we're pretty proud of that fact, and we're growing. So we yep. appreciate everybody who watches, and uh, hope to get more. And yeah. we'll include the links to those in the show notes for those who are listening to the, the podcast. But make sure that you take advantage of that. It, it's hard to beat high-quality, free, on-demand training, right? So, so as far as I'm concerned, you know, YouTube subscription uh, to, to Jerry's channel is, is about as you know, easy of a decision as can be made. Yeah. Folks, uh, Jerry was telling me before we started recording that uh, they're about 8,000 subscribers short of a million. So uh, if you have not gone to YouTube and looked up Jerry's channel, do it and subscribe now. I, I, I've enjoyed your videos very much for years, Jerry. Uh, I mean, both from the uh, educational aspect as well as the pure just entertainment sometimes that you do. Uh, you've even, you know, dressed up in various costumes and things and done some pretty funny, silly <laughs> things. But, uh, yeah, you know, it, it's a pretty hard channel to beat as far as education and entertainment together. Thank you. We're, we're trying to grow, so <laughs> we need help. Thank you. Awesome. Well, folks, uh, support uh, Jerry and his folk, his team, his folks there. And uh, again, the the I'm going to repeat that again. Onvertus.com is a new training site, uh, and uh, there's all kinds of great training uh, videos on there from from Jerry, from from Lena. I think Lena's on there. Daniel Horner. Yep. There's other uh, great shooters that are on on Onvertus.com, and the coupon code that Jerry mentioned was Jerry twenty, right? Yep, correct. There you go. And again, a special shout out and thank you to High Viz Shooting Systems for their support of this podcast, their support of Jerry as well, and, may, and helping him be an awesome shooter for as many years as he's been. And uh, so, yeah, head on over to High, I think it's HighVizSites.com is the website, and uh, give them uh, some love. All right. Correct. Great, great products. HighVizSites.com. Yep. Great products, great sites. Uh, you know, Jacob and I, as we mentioned, we've been running these uh, Lightwave H3s now for the last couple of weeks. I, I shot an entire Dave Spaulding course, two-day course with these uh, H3 sites on. And, uh, you know, they, they're, they're great sites. So there you have it. We're going to let Jerry go now. Uh, thanks again so much, sir. I hope to see you uh, here sometime soon. You're welcome. Thank you. Appreciate you having me. And we're back, man. That was uh, that was that was crazy sauce, man. <laughs> it was crazy sauce. What was really crazy sauce is it took us like an hour to get the technology right, so we could actually talk to that guy in Louisiana. Uh, it, but that was that was really fun, and and I I really feel like I learned some things from Jerry. And, and you know, I think you said this before we you know, played back the interview. Something to the effect of, you know, sometimes. You, you hear something that's not new to you, but it's the way that person said it that now it resonates with you. Uh, it, it, that, you know, where previously just never, you never really got it, right? And so a lot of things he talked about with target transitions with, um, I, I really, really loved as he talked about, you know, kind of dealing with, you know, aging eyes or fuzzy vision, whether, you know, it's because you just need a prescription or because you're getting older. He talked about kind of this margin of error and, and how, you know, having the skill and the experience to know, that at any given moment, even if it's a split-second defensive decision, knowing that for this target, at this distance, you know this is what it's going to take for me to hit that target. You know, in, relative to my sight picture, and and I I I know you know what that looks like and what that needs to be, and and I know that hey, it can be a little fuzzy. This can be a little fuzzy if you know I'm in X Y Z situation, but if I get this, I'm good. Yep. 
Yeah, a lot of uh, great tips that came out in today's episode. Uh, you know, we've been uh, going plenty long now at this point, so I don't want to drag it out any longer. But, uh, you know, I think we did, we talked with Jerry for for about an hour. And again, it was kind of funny or humorous to a degree. Maybe it wasn't humorous to me at the time. I was frankly pretty frustrated. Uh, <laughs> we tried about three different technology options just to uh, get everybody connected so that audio was working and video was working and streaming it to Facebook was working. And then even then, apparently my audio was, my audio, my audio alone, like the stream and everything is originating from me, from my house, for you know, over my internet uh, line. And for whatever reason, your guys' audio is working fine and mine wasn't. <laughs> yep, that's right. Uh, but, but hopefully, you know, and there's a couple times I think too, uh, uh, as you listen, that, you know, Jerry's or even Jacob's audio might kind of do like a little uh, kind of, you know, digital little thing you know i don't know how to explain that stuff uh, and i don't even necessarily know why it happens sometimes but uh we do the best we can and fortunately you know i feel tremendously blessed to have had uh, jerry uh, come on our our show be willing to do that and spend the time it, it that was required to make it happen so uh thank you very much sir and to john who is assisting him by the way well, again, uh, give uh, HiVis some love, uh, HiVisSites.com. We'd appreciate that. And as Jerry mentioned uh, towards the end there, uh, go go check out his YouTube channel and subscribe. Uh, they're so close to that million mark, and that's a big deal, especially on YouTube. And so uh, I know that he'd appreciate that. So with that, it's time to let you go. Jacob? Yeah, remember to train right hard train often train safe no train right train often train safe so you can fight hard fight fast and fight true you got it so folks take care see you next time reminder that laws vary from place to place, and we encourage listeners to seek local legal advice to understand applicable laws. The Concealed Carry Podcast, Concealed Carry Inc., ConcealedCarry.com, and their affiliates strive to share insights and stories about firearm-related incidents and laws, but things could be different where you live, or laws may have changed by the time you listen to this. We cannot be held liable for your actions based on the information shared in this podcast.